All right. Are you ready to talk about schisms? I mean, scientific method. I miss schisms. That was a good episode. Um, you know, you can yes, watch there's... it anytime you want. It's available on Netflix, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, my friend. That is true. Um, well, well, one of the yes, this is uh, has some obvious uh, resonances with schisms. Um, but in some ways, this reminds me. This is another one of those Voyager trying to be original series, like. It has a message about animal testing in this episode. You know, this is very obviously, you know, this is a message episode. This is a society episode. This is making a social point episode. And that is something that we didn't see a ton of in The Next Generation, um, you know, because of its character focus in a lot of ways. And I don't know. I really love that earnestness of it. You know, that this is... This is the mid-90s. Everybody's worried about animal testing, and Star Trek is going to make that episode. You know, that that is true. I think people forget, or, or, or people that listen to this podcast, that it may have been negative 10 years old when, when this episode was originally aired. Oh, God. Uh, you know, people that are like 20 now were not even born. <laughs> Let's not talk in about it. Seven. Um, but it, it is certainly the case that I think scientific method is doing very different things. And it's also the case that, of course, uh, animal testing was a real big issue in the 90s. Uh, You know, I think because people kind of forgot that there were any real issues. Um, We've (laughs) talked before about how the 90s were this sort of like strange amnesiac golden age in America in the Western world, even though there were a lot of problems brewing under the surface, which came to light years later. And yeah, like animal testing, like I remember, um, what was it, uh, uh, like cosmetics and things of that yeah. nature were really big. We're not really talking about like murdering animals or anything like that. I think that for the most part, animals are still tortured and hurt on a near daily basis in terms of scientific research. So I don't actually yeah. know how much this episode uh, is a message episode in terms of that. Um, yeah, no, this is just we have a shampoo. Is this going to... You know, melt your skin off. Oh, let's put it on a puppy kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, this is another Lisa Klink script. It's it's pretty good, although the story was actually not uh, hers. She was assigned to write the teleplay. Uh, you know, so so it doesn't necessarily have, like, as much of her influence, I think. But it does kind of feature a lot of her... I think what I'm seeing with her scripts is that she is very interested in the characters and she is very interested in in developing them. And I don't know if she's ever really interested in the actual plots of the episode. That is not a criticism at all. No, I think that one of the things that I appreciate about Voyager as a television series, or at least her episodes, this one is no different. Is that like, why are these aliens doing this? For what purpose? They don't, like, who knows? We don't know. We have no idea. And it seems kind of nonsensical. I mean, what are they really learning by sticking like hot pokers into Jamie's <laughs> head, for example? No, I know. And, you know, the, it, it, it's so ambiguous. And she implies, oh, well, this is going to, you know, yeah. it's one thing if it's like, this is almost a plot line you can see the Vidians getting involved in, right? Because they have this, uh, specific medical condition that has in their minds required and allowed extraordinary measures this is further extraordinary measures okay they're trying to cure the phage and they've decided to experiment on every but other than some vague quality of life things i mean the 
head scientist that Jane, you know, that Jamie captures in the brink just seems to imply, you know, oh, this is gonna, you know, maybe they're working on the cure to cancer, but you know, it, it doesn't matter in a way if it's a cure to can- for cancer or wrinkles, though. To be fair, yeah, sure, but I mean, like on the other hand sticking hot pokers into Janeway's head isn't yeah. going to help them cure cancer. Do you know what I mean? Like, No, no, of course. There there are ways in which the aliens in this episode, whose name I don't even think I wrote down, I did not, uh, because frankly it doesn't matter, uh, are kind of bullshitting them. I, I don't know that we're even really supposed to believe that they're on the level i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. why are they being so secretive about this what exactly are they doing what are they learning from this i mean put it this way they would have they would be getting something from it and whether it is just you know how to make lipstick not stick you know or whatever and let's say that they have some tenuous connection towards giving janeway migraines that's going to you know, determine, you know, maybe they're working on a pain medication, let's say, and, you know, we're going to jack up the pain as much as this. So whatever the reasoning is, um, whether it is something that is legitimately going to help people's health or it is something that they're just kind of bullshitting and this is just going to do a paper that's going to molder in a library forever, um, the point is more that they haven't done this research I mean, they aren't on the level by doing this. So it really, again, it really doesn't matter their reasoning. And I feel like they will have good reasoning either way for themselves. You mean justifications? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, justifications. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And and certainly I think that a lot of the, you know, medical devices that uh, Seven sees when she adjusts her her vision to be able to to see whatever is going on um, are designed to be as striking and horrific as possible you know i I I don't that was a you you talk about how the plot doesn't really matter which is true but if we get to see some cool stuff and that was that section was really cool stuff it was a really creepy sequence yeah and and certainly i think that that i'm being a little churlish in comparing it to to schisms schisms because schisms is a really good well, I don't know if Schisms is a really good episode. I think Schisms had a really good scene. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of the episode surrounding it was a mystery that once you know what the mystery is, I don't know how interesting it is. Fair enough. Although the end of it, of course, with the fish people is is an example of Star Trek doing a little more creature aliens, as you like to say. Uh, these aliens creatures. are just yeah. humans with funny haircuts. So I think in a certain sense, I think this episode is, I guess I'll say a heretical thing that I think a Voyager episode is better than a TNG equivalent because at least it's trying to say something. And I think that I like the, I like, in in some respects, I think that the fourth season of Voyager is kind of shaping up to be the hangout season. Like the first 15 minutes of this episode, like nothing happens. They're all just kind of running around, bullshitting. You know, Paris and Balan are continuing to have heterosexual romance, and nothing oh, that scene occurs. Was, that scene was so gross when they're making out and it's disgusting, and then they save you by like making it an X-ray, and then you don't have to actually watch it. I know. I was I was really <laughs> pleased at that. I was like, great. I don't even think that was an actual X-ray, but anyway, uh, it's like an MRI or something. It's. I mean, it, it's, it, it's late '90s CG, is what it was. <laughs> But I don't know. I just I kind of like that. I mean, Lisa yeah. Plank is certainly a writer that is interested in these characters, and you know, until the plot starts happening, I, I think that this episode is just kind of like, all right, we're just going to have a good time with these characters. 
Yeah, I like that they have a very again they to the de- the degree to which they may or may not have characterized the Delta Quadrant is something that comes up a lot. But I think these episodes are characterizing what day to day life on Voyager is like, and I do like that it 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 this ship is supposed to be a world unto itself in a lot of ways, right? And uh, that was some of my favorite bits about DS9 is that you have this very specific location and here's what goes on in this location on any given day. Next Generation did that somewhat. I would say the original series uh, maybe not as maybe not as clear on that way, although that the original series kind of focused more on the military aspects of Starfleet in, in, in its presentation, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the original series is its own thing, but it's very different from what the other shows were doing or trying to do by by dint of the fact that it was, you know, in the 60s as opposed to the 80s or 90s. And that's, you know, again, don't take that as a criticism of original series. It's a different, it is a different animal. Sure, yeah. But I think that the the thing that I think is, is kind of weird about Scientific Method, though, is Voyager plots seem to, at least when they involve spacefaring aliens, seem to come down to Voyager is either surreptitiously being controlled or affected by the aliens or Voyager is kind of trying to bully their way through their space. And this is a feature of Jerry Taylor Voyager. I don't necessarily think this was a feature of of pillar voyager i I don't recall any plots where janeway's just like well fuck you we're going through our space i mean perfect example year of hell which we'll talk about in a few minutes but you know i don't like i i just think about what impression voyager is making on the delta quadrant in terms of like when the federation in 100 years or 50 years or 200 years however long it takes them to expand their yeah uh uh, you know expand their their scientific and exploratory pursuits into the delta quadrant do you really think that (laughs) a lot of the aliens that voyager has encountered are going to be happy to see them I, i don't really necessarily think so and what's what's strange about it is that yeah they are well, they they are the first contact of the Federation in this territory. They are representing the Federation. I don't they're representing the Federation, but they're not yeah. really doing a very good job of it, which I'm not criticizing them for because they're under very difficult circumstances. But what I think is interesting is that, like, certainly Janeway in this episode is ratcheting up her tension. I mean... Certainly, Kate Mulgrew is playing Janeway very, very snippy, very exasperated, yeah. uh, you know, short, uh, uh, because she essentially is, is being tortured for days yeah, and, and she not has being a able to sleep. Like... Yeah, but, I mean, I think that scene where she dresses down Bellana and, and, and Paris is, is, is uh, just beautiful. I mean, yeah. I, I wish that more people would, would yell at straight people for, for doing <laughs> kind of stuff like that. Um, I, I think the world would be a better place. But I, it's fine that they have their little romances. They do whatever they do. I just don't want to see it. Sure, exactly. But what's weird about it, though, is that while there certainly is a difference in quality or a qualitative difference in the way Janeway is acting, I don't necessarily think there's a quantitative difference in the way she's acting. I just... I just keep coming around to the idea that the longer this show goes on, Janeway is the cause of a lot of their problems. Yeah, no, 
again, I think in Janeway is the wrong captain for this particular mission in a way. Like I, I, I'm not sure to the degree that Voyager realizes that, and this is part of the fish out of water nature in this. But um, Kirk in this situation, Picard in this situation, Cisco in this situation, they would all handle it differently, but. I think they would handle it a little more effectively in their own way. Um, Jane, I think I don't think Cisco would have done a very good job in this situation, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, you know, either way. Um, and and this is less to say that Janeway is the first captain that couldn't do that. I guess what more I mean to say is that Janeway is really good when you put up her up against a problem, like a scientific problem. She is a scientist in that way, and. Um, Although the show seems to forget that, but anyway. Yeah. Um, I think she is somebody who is more effective within a normal infrastructure and now in her, you know, in a place where there is no rest of the Federation around her and it is up to her. Yes, she has stepped up to this in her way, but I don't think Janeway has as much points in diplomacy as other captains would have. And this is a particular mission that requires that kind of finesse that I don't think Janeway has. I think that's true. I also think that that Janeway has a a single-minded focus that doesn't really suit her well in this situation. Yeah. You know, I I can see Janeway exploring the Alpha Quadrant and the Beta Quadrant, having the resources resources of the Federation at her back, and and coming up against a problem that that she can't solve and going, all right, well, you know, I'll just contact Starfleet and they'll contact the Federation Council and they'll send some diplomats and everything will be fine and we can go off and, you know, chart some nebula. In this situation, it, it seems to me that, that Janeway's personality is such that she's not uh, she's not really equipped to, to sort of like go around things. And literally in a lot of cases, yeah. Yeah, and like I mean, what she does at the end of this episode is so unbelievably reckless that I can't believe that there wasn't a mutiny. And yes, you know, she was under extraordinary strain because the aliens were depriving her of sleep for days and days. And we are not, maybe we're not supposed to take this as indicative of what she would have actually done if she wasn't under such extraordinary psychological strain. But at the same time, she did it. Yeah, no, no, it is still her. It is still her who is making the orders and it is still uh, Tuvok and Chakotay who are following the orders. And it is still, you know, there there is a... <clears throat> particularly due to the chain of command in existence, we have to hold her culpable for her actions in this episode. Um, had you know that one, had it not hit that one in twenty chance, uh, and the ship got massively damaged and people got killed or whatever, they would the deaths would be on her hands. It is the fact that it's the fact that this is Star Trek Voyager that they all got through alive and okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Tuvok as well, because I, I, I do think that while he doesn't feature heavily in this episode, of course, he, he does have a couple of nice lines that, that make me think that Lisa Klink remembers that he was supposed to be like her best friend. Yeah. There, there's one line in particular where she's berating, um, or not berating, I guess, she's she's giving Tuvok instructions, and, and he says, should I flog them as well? Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain things that he says in this episode that, that indicate to me that Lisa Klink remembers that they're supposed to have a relationship and that when Tim Russ is given the material that the show yeah. seemed to promise him in the first season, he he does a good job with it. And I just wish that 
they would remember that they had this relationship. Yeah, and I love that understanding that Vulcans make jokes. They are going to be very wry, very dry jokes, but they will make jokes. Um, Again, I like this show's understanding that Tuvok has emotions. Yeah, certainly. I guess we could talk a little bit more about Seven. In in a lot of ways, I I don't necessarily want to chart the day-to-day development of the character because, you know, that's... That way lies tedium and madness, but um, but at the same time, though, I, I think that we did do a somewhat similar thing with Ezri Dax. I mean, yeah, you know, Seven is weird because she is so obviously the it girl, yeah, in a way that Ezri Dax wasn't. Ezri Dax was coming into an extraordinarily strong cast that. Not even, I mean, not even the primary cast. I mean, the the the, the characters and the cast of DS Nine went like three or four levels deep. I mean, this is not a show that has a deep bench, as I will talk about in Year yeah. of Hell. But you know, so so Seven of Nine is kind of like this outsized presence on the show because she's the shiny new toy, and everyone is really invested in and excited to write for her. So I, I yeah. don't think it's unfair. To, to do that no no and i like that the show is kind of doing right by the character like every day is going to be a new experience and i don't know i think it's a singular scene when she is doing sabotage and having to do stuff covertly but completely to save everybody and you know taking that from the introduction of the character as somebody who is going to sabotage the ship in order to take over to assimilate it you know to keep that to, to to keep the things the way they are again that's a that's a big big step for her and i like i like balana's bit where she you know connects her own development you know as a character to where seven is you know she happens to make the same exact speech that janeway made for her and i don't know it's it's they're doing a lot of subtle stuff to connect bits of Federation life to bits of Borg life, because, um, you know, Bellana has a, has a speech like, you know, procedures have to be followed. We have to work together. We all have to follow the same rules. Well, that's a pretty high-level description of the Borg as well. There are, um, again, this, this show is maybe not saying the Borg are good. I think the Borg are still an evil force in, in a way, but, the question it, it's it's always been a sense of who would want to live like a borg everything about it sounds horrible and i think it's interesting that they are pointing out things about borg life that you know we in federation completely independence you know individuality land can understand and connect with and appreciate too we understand maybe why the society continues yeah, well, I mean, I you know, I, not to turn this into like a big discussion about the Borg, but I, I think it's relevant to, to the beginning of this episode in that it, the, the show is making an argument and comparing and contrasting the two. But, I mean, you're also just kind of questioning the existence of society at a certain point. Yeah. And, yes, we are all individuals, but we have to come up with rules and procedures and organizations and bureaucracy in order to have a a, a civilization. You know, we're not all living in the woods by ourselves. And so 
you know, I, I think that what I'm seeing is seven of nine is starting to to realize that perhaps there is more value in mm. uh, a sort of, you know, sparks of intuition or ideas that the Borg just don't have. You know, she she makes the point at least a couple times, not in this episode, but um, in other episodes that, you know, the Borg don't invent anything. The Borg don't create anything. They, they assimilate. And you know, if they see something that an alien species has that the Borg needs or wants, they'll they'll just take it. But that is not a a dynamic society. I mean, that is yeah, that yeah, is yeah. cancer. So, yeah, I mean, in a whereas, way, it's making Federation life more attractive to Seven because she recognizes that we still have a lot of the same things you crave. We have order. We have you know balance. We have everybody working together as a unit. Those are things that. Seven loved about the Borg and that she is very loath to give up. The Federation perspective is you can have all of those plus imagination and actual friendship and, you know, more intimate relationships. So it's a much more richer version of that existence. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think so. And I I also think that, you know, to wrap it back around to scientific method, I, I think that if the aliens had been on a Borg ship, the Borg ship probably would have been destroyed. I don't think that the Borg would have been able to, to fight against these people. You know, Seven in this situation, I mean, this is this is not really any one specific episode, but, you know, Seven of Nine does have sort of the arc of the episode in that she begins it in one place and ends it in a very yeah. different place. And she learns a lesson, et cetera, et cetera. But uh-huh. at the end of the day she's the one that is able to use her now human powers of, of intuition to, to discover things that, that actually help them, you know, and if Janeway solves the problem a little too recklessly, well, okay. Yeah. That's Janeway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm hoping Janeway doesn't do anything too stupid. Again, the fact that this is Star Trek Voyager makes <laughs> it, you know, but She's going to make some curious moves. She's made some curious moves already, and that's just going to escalate as the series goes on, isn't it? I will keep my mouth <laughs> shut. Well, uh, one last thing I want to mention before we move on to Year of Hell is that we do have a very brief mention of Ensign Wildman. Richard has no idea who Ensign Wildman is. Good job, Star Trek Voyager. Ensign Wildman was the person who had a baby. Remember that? That baby's got to be like four by now. All right, let's move on to Year of Hell. But before we do, I just want to take a quick opportunity to remind all of you that this podcast is listener-supported. We do rely on your donations to fund our podcasting endeavors. Please go to patreon.com slash and give now. Okay, Year of Hell. Yeah, so this was foreshadowed. It was at the end of the third season. Good good pickup. Yeah, um, I had forgotten that this was coming. Um I assume I am not to question too much about certain aspects like, well, Kess was there for the original timeline and 709 wasn't there. But, like, I'm just not going to go into that. I mean, you just take it as it's a different timeline. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it matters that much, honestly. I always looked at it as, well, Voyager was heading that way anyway. So they were going to run into the Krenum at some point, even though Kess left. Timelines are a thing. In yeah, Star that's kind of how episode I'd... is playing around with timelines. So we'll just go with that. I bet it pisses a lot of people off, though. You know, a lot of things about <laughs> Voyager piss a lot of people <laughs> off. And I just go, whatever, man. 
this is, you know, it has some of the usual two-parter problem where, you know, where this all ends up going may, you know, may, this may be a terrible ending to this episode and so everything that's set up, you know, or whatever, but I liked this. This is the kind of situation that Voyager will get into from time to time and this does help the feeling of being all alone in the Delta Quadrant. I... And maybe this is a post-Buffy thing. I wish the show would focus on a big bad per season if it's going to do something like that. Like, to have... You know, we've had the Kazon when we've had the, um... The fucking VDNs, and, you know, now we have these guys. You know, it seems like every... And the Borg, and... You know, they keep going through all these hostile territories, but, um... Again, that's a nitpick, I guess. I like Year of Hell a lot, but I think that... I'm always of two minds about it, because... You know, so Brandon Braga picked up on that line from before and after uh, the year of hell. He thought it was sort of a dynamic line and he yeah. just wanted to, to go with it. You know, and I also think that that certainly um, if you think back to sort of like Brian and Braga and Ronald D. Moore, kind of the dream team writing for, for TNG, Brian and Braga was really good at these sort of mind bending plots and Ronald D. Moore was good at whatever Ronald D. Moore was good at. I kid. He was good at a lot of things. <laughs> uh, you know, this this is written by by Brian and Braga and, and, and Joe Minoski. And so. You know, what you have in this episode, I think, is is an episode that is doing a really good job of telling a very th- – this is a, this is an episode's plot that could get very convoluted. And I don't think it totally makes sense, but I think that while you're watching it, it makes sense, and that's about all you need. Yeah, it makes as um, much sense and, as it needs to. Right. And, and Joe Minoski gives you the emotional resonance, the character beats that he's really good at. And so I think they make a good team for Voyager. What I want to ask you is, and, and this is sort of because Brian Braga originally said that he wanted to do this episode as, as four parts. Um, so he kind of wanted to like not have it be a two parter, but just kind of like a mini arc sure, instead. Sure. So I don't know how exactly that would have would have worked. I guess like I, DS Nine sometimes did it with the um, sure, yeah. So he wanted to he wanted to do that, and then I've also read um, when I uh, read the fiftieth anniversary, uh, you know, unauthorized sort of like uh, oral histories, uh, you know, last year, Brian Braga was was a lot more forthcoming and said that he originally pitched this as like the entire fourth season of the show, and I think Jerry Taylor and UPN were both kind of like, no, we're not doing that. Um, you know, I have heard that UPN was was very hesitant about doing. Uh, arcs about doing arc-based storytelling about doing serialized storytelling um i think partly because of, of how ds9 was performing yeah. um and also just because they were bad at running a network um you know i mean i, I think that we have we, we've got enough distance from upn at this point to say like paramount was just not very good at running a network and the choices they were making especially for for voyager i think made it a lesser show than it could have been um and I think this is also where you start to see that Brian Braga gets blamed for stuff that he really had no control over. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that there's a lot of stuff going on right now about mediocre men falling upwards and getting chance after chance after chance to make mediocre stuff. And certainly I, you know, I, I believe those, you know, I, I kind of, I'm with those uh, criticisms of, of a lot of, of films and television and, mu- mu- you know, music and things of that nature. Patrons, if um, you'd like to listen to our special on the Orville, that's a few <laughs> months back, and uh, Erica yeah. talks about that, but continue. I talk about that a lot. 
Um, but but you know, like I think Brandon Bragg is a pretty decent writer, and yeah. I think that he gets criticized for a lot of stuff that he really tried to. I think he gets criticized for a lot of stuff that he didn't do, and that people sort of like use him as the the whipping boy poster child for the decline of the Star Trek franchise. And I don't think it's right. Like, would this storyline have worked if it was the entire fourth season? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, on Um, the one hand, it's... I don't know how they would have done that. And would there still be adventures from episode to episode if they're on, you know, if if it's in the entire fourth season? But, you know, there are questions that I would have about how it would exactly be presented. But it does seem like... Braga has his ambitions for this show. Like, he has some ideas of... In other words, if they had tried... This is the entire fourth season is about the... Is is a depiction of the year of hell. And it fails because, you know, Brad, Braga doesn't have the talent or just they can't sustain it or it's too early to do that style of storytelling. Um, I think the show would be richer for that attempt at the ambition. But then again, maybe I've liked the fourth season so far already and maybe... I, I, I don't necessarily know if I'm lamenting that it wasn't the fourth season, but maybe a four-episode arc would have been more interesting. I, I think that there's there's a couple things there. I think number one is that um, you, you will see Brandon Braga's abilities to spin out a season-long arc in the third season of Star Trek Enterprise, and, you know— We'll we'll leave that box unopened until we get to that point. <laughs> but you know, just remember that when we get there, because sure. we can have a conversation about how well you think Year of Hell as a season long arc would have worked or not. Now, of course, you know that said, he also wasn't show running the fourth season of Star Trek Voyager, so yeah. who knows? But that that gives some indication of how that would have gone. I also think that like I like Year of Hell a lot. I, I, the two parter, you know, the second part, we'll see where it goes. Um, I think as an opening episode of a two-parter, it's very good. Oh, yeah. I think that what it comes down to for me is that, like, Star Trek Voyager is an unambitious show, but it's not for lack of wanting to be ambitious. I think that what you see behind the scenes are a lot of the writers wanting to do more ambitious storytelling and just getting shot down by Mm. UPN, by the network, by, by Rick Berman, by whoever. And... I don't know how to feel about that. I mean, certainly we have to criticize the show that we have, and I enjoy Star Trek Voyager, but I enjoy it more on a comfort food level than anything yeah. else. And I just keep thinking to like, if the show had had a deeper bench of secondary characters, how much more meaningful yeah. that last speech in the in the destroyed mess hall with the remaining crew of, of the Voyager um would have been if we actually knew who any of those people were if they weren't just random extras yeah Um, i mean deep space nine does that a lot where they have characters who are going to be parting for a very long time and you know for example voyager doesn't have a nog right like nog was not a major character he was only in you know x number of episodes but you know when he he left ds9 to go fight in the dominion war like your heart is breaking for him I I don't know the names of anybody. My heart is not, you know, when Chakotay says, oh, we're, I don't want to break the family up, you know, when, um, what, what family? Yeah. That's, that, that's the problem at the heart of Star Trek Voyager is that they keep coming back to this idea of the Voyager crew as a family. What family? We have no family. We have the officers. Yeah, but we have nine. Yeah, we have the officers. We have nine main cast members that, that 
our various shades of interesting or not. But at the end of the day, the rest of the crew is just interchangeable background extras. And when an episode like Year of Hell relies on you to really care about them, I think that, okay, yes, you sub in in your own mind. Okay, she's talking about the crew members that we know, and we'll just expand that out to everybody. Uh, you know, we'll expand it out to the Delaney sisters and Ensign Wildman and, yeah. you know, whoever the fuck. Um, but it doesn't quite work as well as it could, I think. Yeah, and like, you, like Next Generation didn't try to pretend that Picard had that that much in the way of intimacies with anybody outside of his of his immediate bridge crew but uh the point of that one of the points of the series and particularly at the end of all good things is that you know this group of people has grown very close and you know it's this in a way the click the friendship uh similar in deep space nine that's what they're doing here but next generation and deep space nine didn't pretend to include everybody else in the family and this is trying to but it's not done the work yeah because i mean let's not forget that 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 voyager is supposed to be a much smaller ship than the enterprise d from from tng you know we're talking about a thousand crew members versus like 140 yeah you know that that's going to make a a huge difference and with a lot less uh, turnover than is probably going on in the enterprise too with no turnover yeah unless somebody dies or or they leave the ship in the in the case of Cass, but but no one's leaving no one's getting reassigned so these people are living with with each other day in and day out you know in 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 scientific method let's not forget that that janeway um is criticizing people for for being uh, you know too familiar and and and, you know being late to bridge shifts and that kind of stuff and yeah she's she's being uh you know her her brain is being uh, stabbed with needles but and that's the line that tuvok says we know shall i flog them as well so this is something that that the show is interested in telling us is going on but isn't really interested in showing us yeah uh, and and their attempts at again they couldn't figure out what to do with suitor so they killed him he was the beginning of a backbench yeah absolutely yeah, and I, I think that, you know, th- there are a little bit of a backbench later Boric on in the is show's a, run. Is, is from time to time. He's around. Yeah, that's Yeah, true. that's, but I mean, like, that's the... But where is he in this episode? Yeah, that's, the, yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, this would have been a perfect opportunity to have, you know, to have Warwick in the episode. At least we know who he is, and we, he could have had a heartwarming scene with Bolana, for example. Yeah. Uh, it seems that any backbench happens accidentally, and they're not interested, like... I'm not. Well, pic- and I'm not picturing an O'Brien growing out of any of the secondary, uh, secondary or tertiary <laughs> characters from Voyager. Yeah, I, I think I think that that's a, a good way to look at it, and I, I I would hesitate to put a lot of intentionality behind developing yeah. a backbench of characters. No. I mean, I certainly think that you know if we take DS9 as the gold standard in terms of of Star Trek having a, a backbench of really strong characters. A lot of it happened because they just got really lucky with the actors and the yeah. chemistry. You know, no one really intended Garrick to go where he did. No one really intended for Gold Cot to go where he did. No one intended Nog to go where he did. And I think you see that in a character like Jake Sisko, who inexplicably was a main character in the main credits for seven seasons. And I think yeah. you could have made a much stronger argument to make Gold Cot a main cast member for some or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So voyager but but the problem with voyager is that like they're not even trying yeah but i mean like i uh, my understanding is that o'brien you know was just an extra that 
you know, kept showing up and they liked and, you know, so then they gave yeah. him a line and, you know, eventually, you know, as he was able to handle. Um, but they haven't done any of that on on Voyager yet. That hasn't. No, and they, they, they've actively fought against. Them. Yeah. I mean, your suitor example is right on. Like that was a really dynamic character that we still remembered, you know, two seasons later. Uh, you know, Brad Dorff is a fantastic actor who could have brought yeah. a lot to the show. And, you know, Jerry Taylor was like, well, what are we going to do with him? Let's just kill him. You know, and it's just stuff like that where you think, what kind of yeah. creative choices were you making? I, I don't get it. And, you know, when you have an episode like Year of Hell, which I think, you know, I, I, I sound really down on this episode, but but I do like it quite a bit. Yeah, no, it, it was a really, as you said, it was a really good, it's very tense, it's very scary isn't quite the word, but it's a very disheartening episode. Like, we are seeing the ship in ruins, you know, this is, and while we know that the ship is capable of getting through this as before and after had implied, it was with great cost, you know, and we are seeing that cost being paid. This is, again, something that, as the only ship in the entire quadrant, is going to mess them up really badly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, maybe this is a good opportunity to to talk about Janeway's stubbornness, because I... <laughs> Year of Hell is a, is the perfect encapsulation of the the Janeway school of captaincy not really working. I mean, like I understand why they don't want to go around, but at a certain point, yeah, you just kind of have to like respect. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot of respect of alien cultures and alien borders going on here. It seems to me like Janeway is like, you know what? We need to get back to the Alpha Quadrant, so fuck all y'all. And, yeah. uh, you know, whatever else, if that's Star Trek, if that's not Star Trek, I, I don't want to really want to get into that discussion. But, like, just on a pure tactical level, that's not a good idea. I mean, again, I, I and this may be one of the areas that Janeway still hasn't cl- quite clicked where they are, but... If she's at the other end of the Alpha Quadrant going through other space, there are treaties that have been already set up and for, for most of them, and she probably could just one ship get passage through most of those. She seems to still think that she's in a place where there is the infrastructure where she can ask nicely, and that when they come up with a very particular set of rules for her to follow, because, again, they don't know who the hell the ship is, the Borg have attacked this region, you know, they have... 20 reasons for why they won't, you know, immediately let get, give Janeway the keys to the city. Um, she seems to take it as a personal affront. You know, she, I mean, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. about um, what was the episode? Um, the, 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 the Raven, uh, where, where they plot a course that's longer than going around it is. And yes, Let's have Janeway ask if they can do a shorter course, if they can do something about that. But when they say they really can't do that, all right, well, it's going to be shorter to go around. You know, she insists on going through because she doesn't want to be told no. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Janeway doesn't want to be told no, and that's kind of what it comes down to. And, you know, with the Krenum, of course, I mean, the interesting thing about about the the opening of this episode, and I think the interesting thing about where we are with, with Star Trek as a whole in terms of the entire project of this podcast is that it's it's becoming very self-referential i mean i think that the scene where the krenim time ship run by uh you know uh, red from uh that 70s show or that or odo's predecessor yes that too um is 
very reminiscent of the scene from yesterday's Enterprise, mm. where it transitions from the Enterprise D that we know and love to the Klingon War uh, Enterprise D when the Enterprise C emerges out of the Time Nebula, whatever it is. You know, that's the very, very reminiscent. I think that's probably intentional, and and so the implication being, of course, that this timeline that's happening is is going to be restored at some point because. Yeah. What Anorax is doing is, of course, this crazy, insane thing about wanting to to restore the 100% of the Krenum Imperium or whatever the hell it is. Because Kitty was killed in this timeline. Right, exactly. And, you know, he is ostensibly a, a lunatic, but it's also the fact that it's really, really, I don't know, there, there's something about it that doesn't feel real and i think some of it is the the structure of it i think some of it is is how brown and bragg and joe minoski decided to write this episode you know it's it's very episodic uh they've got these little moments you know day 47 day 70 blah 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 and so obviously a lot of time is passing but it doesn't necessarily feel like a lot of time is passing and what's more is that the visual cues when the the voyager goes over to the other timeline where the Krenum Imperium is back to 98% uh, uh, efficiency or powerfulness doesn't necessarily feel real. Yeah, I mean, that that I think is part of where I think a longer spate of episodes, whether it's a season, whether it's four episodes, because this is, a, you know, whether or not 365 days pass during the course of the episode, maybe the entire thing is really just six months. The point is, about three or four months passed during this just this episode and maybe that split that in a couple of episodes and that would feel like longer time because i think the amount of just how long this period of time lasted is going to this is a really long ass war that they're in the middle of and i think that that the duration of it needs to feel like that. I mean, the Dominion War felt like a very long thing because it was stretched out over a couple of seasons, and uh, DS9 did a lot with how long the war felt. Yeah, and I, I certainly think that this episode does a good job of of selling the highs because, yeah. you know, they're getting beat up. The sh- I mean, they really do sell oh, how yeah. badly Voyagers is, is being destroyed. And... It looks beat up. It looks yeah. destroyed, essentially. I mean, they have to abandon the ship at the end of the episode. And so that part of it works very well. I think that what, to me... So so when they get to that point, when they get to that point of having the, the new shields working, that is a, like a holy shit, oh, they're, they're going to be okay moment. And it, it does feel earned. I think yeah. that what's interesting about this episode more than anything else is that despite all the sort of long-term storytelling criticisms that I think we have of Star Trek Voyager, uh, they do still stick the landing in this episode to a large degree. I think a lot of that is due to the fact that Joe Minoski is is a really, really good character writer. Mm-hmm. And he's able to imbue a lot of these smaller scenes with a lot of good character resonance. But... What what does it lead up to? I mean, we'll have to find out next week. Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm thinking about the scene between Harry Bellana and Seven of Nine when they're, uh, you know, asking trivia, and the, you know, Bellana's, and oh, and we know that Bellana is going to get very I- injured if not killed in this timeline, and so seeing her, you know, pretty bashed up is of course a worrying thing, but 
you know, I, I, as of right now, Bellana and Harry seem to be some of uh, Seven of Nine's closer crewmates and seeing the three of them interact, seeing her kind of jump in on the history question, you know, the, the nice little callback that she kind of knows what happened in the, in the first Contact movie. I mean, these are, this is, I don't know why Voyager gets the criticism that it doesn't have, not all of its characters are great. Again, Harry Kim is barely a character, but I don't know where Voyager gets that criticism that it does not have strong characters. Yeah, and I know this is a partially a question of why do people on the internet complain about the thing? Like, I love it. It's fine. What's wrong with them? I mean, that that's a little unfair on me to say, but... But I think a lot of it has to do with people having a very particular idea about what a show with this premise would look like yeah. and what it would feel like. And it's not like that. And so when people don't get what they expect, they reflexively don't like it year of hell is a really interesting episode to have this discussion on because i think a lot of the criticisms that you hear of voyager is that you know it, it doesn't have any strong characters it doesn't have a narrative through line it, it's not realistic quote unquote you know the ship would be a lot more beat up that you know they wouldn't be wearing their uniforms you know all these yeah. kind of things right i mean it, it, it would kind of fall apart at some point and year of hell is their answer to that and what I think is 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 problematic about Year of Hell is less of the type of story it wants to tell and more that it doesn't have enough to work with. Mm. Like Year of Hell is a really, really good episode of television, but that's all it is. It's not a sort of revelatory yeah. experience like Deep Space Nine is. And I guess, yeah, it, 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 again, a, a version of the show that has a large backbench that gives this a good four or six episodes, let's even say, devoted to the Year of Hell. Again, it's split into vignettes. We could have little vignettes with, you know, the DS9 version of this would have a scene with Garrick and a scene with Nog, and, you know, maybe they'd go to the Klingon restaurant, and then, you know, what what's Dax doing, and what are, you know, and because of the much smaller cast that's on here, they don't have anyone else to tell vignettes about. And so, yeah, I can, you know, maybe two parts is all that this can handle because it would be spread pretty thin. It doesn't really have more characters to draw on. Yeah. Because at a certain point with, with this version of Star Trek Voyager, yeah. what would telling this story over a whole season really get? Like it wouldn't really get you much. Yeah. And I think it would get very, very tiresome after a while. Yeah. If you have a bunch more stories you can tell, you can keep it fresh, but they just don't. I, I mean, I you know, I, I think the other thing, too, and this this will probably be, be more of an issue in the second part of this two-parter, but, you know, I think the other reason why Star Trek Voyager gets a lot of criticism is that it's really criticized for the reset button for, you know, this is a show that, that demands serialized storytelling, that things would not be the same episode to episode because they can't go and magically go to a star base and get everything fixed. And yes, that's true, and I'm not saying it's not true. Um, and this episode in particular highlights that fact very very much and i think that some writers i think like ron d moore when he came on the show you know did say that he thought that voyagers should you know like look more beat up it you know it looks pristine it looks like it just came out of the factory and at the same time they have done a little bit this season like 
the Borg replace the, the the um the Borg adjustments to the hull and stuff like that took a couple episodes before they were gone. Now the Voyager crew works absurdly quickly and absurdly efficiently and apparently has access to replicator tech that they maybe don't really have, but I I I I think that's part of the implication of what I've seen, that they just fix it so quickly. You know, but yeah. they are kind of acknowledging that it is broken a bit in the season. Now I don't know I know by in a couple of episodes Voyager's gonna be fixed up from the uh you know, they're not abandoning the ship. They're gonna do something. Now maybe there will be time fuckery that will get uh Voyager back to where it was before this. This M- is a maybe? time travel episode, but <laughs> This is a time travel episode written by Brian and Bragg on Star Trek Voyager. Do you really think that they're just going to leave Voyager fucked up at the end of the two-parter? <laughs> okay, fair. St- ask a stupid question. Well, we're just going to have to see where it goes. I do want to say, though, that the the one thing that I really uh, do appreciate about this episode that I don't think it's enough attention or credit uh, is is just how wonderful the, the Zal ambassador is at the beginning of this episode. Oh, yeah, where he's like... He's just like a reasonable dude who seems to be having a delightful time, and it's really a shame that he got wiped from existence. Well, maybe through due to time fuckery, he'll be back. Oh, and yes, maybe, and and he also bizarrely looks like um, the Federation president from uh, Paradise Paradise Lost uh, DS Nine two parter. But anyway, it's been long. Um, and. I think last week or the week before, you said that you thought it would be very unusual or, or, or a low chance that Neelix would ever be in a Starfleet uniform. Well, ah, yeah, there you go. Not to say that he stays in that uniform because because of time fuckery. Yep. Okay, maybe maybe I do want to criticize Voyager's reset buttonness. Criticize it all you want. That's what we're here <laughs> for. All right, well, I think we'll just have to see where this goes next week. If you have any thoughts on either Scientific Method or Year of Hell, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast tuning in. We are discussing the X-Files episodes Never Again and Memento Mori this week. We are in another fine season of the X-Files, so don't miss that, tuninginshow.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast iTunes review for Truck About. Next week, we're going to be talking about Year of Hell Part 2. No surprise there. And Random Thoughts.